I want to speak to this evening before we, as you know, we're going to have some baptisms in, in not so long. Um, before we do that, I want to speak to you from one of the Gospels and, and speak to you from Matthew chapter 4. Before I read this passage in Matthew 4.18, if you've got a Bible, feel free to turn to that, but it'll come up on the screen in a moment or two as well. I just want to lay a little bit of backdrop as to why I was drawn to this particular story. As you know, I'm, I'm sure that um, the Lord Jesus was born uh, in Bethlehem, and uh, in the first part of his life, 30 years or so, uh, he remained somewhat incognito, and uh, he was learning and growing as any boy would, and uh, was very much um, part of his family and community in Nazareth there, had become a builder, and was um, employed, and so on, until he hits age 30. And what took place then was that he was baptized, and immediately he began to become a traveling preacher. He left behind his business, and he left behind his family, and he left behind his village, and became a traveling preacher. And so he comes from complete um, anonymity, a situation in which no one really knows him except his immediate friends and so on, and no one certainly knows uh, exactly what he was to do and accomplish and be, even his family. His mother had obviously treasured up certain ideas about him in her heart, but his own brothers and sisters didn't believe in him in any sense that you and I would recognize. They just saw him as their older brother. And then he began preaching. And immediately on the back of that, there begins this invitation. Jesus begins to invite individuals to become part of his retinue and following and become his disciples. He would be the master or the rabbi. They would be the students or the disciples. And so he pulls people in. He has got concentric circles of followers. There are the very tight band that are the 12 disciples. But beyond that, there are others. And I was drawn to this particular account. It's the invitation of the first disciples to come and follow Jesus, because I think it resonates with the theme that we're going to be thinking about this evening in terms of baptism. And here's what it says in Matthew chapter 4. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I want to read you just one more paragraph to give you an idea of the kind of things that they then were privileged to witness. It says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, An unusual thing is happening today in the baptisms that we've been witnessing this morning and will witness um, this evening. Baptism is a threshold moment in the life of any individual. When a person makes a kind of decision that that crosses a line, I suppose, from 
maybe faith and association and interest in Jesus to absolute commitment and determination to be a disciple. It marks a line in the sand. And it's symbolic also of a kind of death. You're dying. We bury people in the water and then they're raised up. And it's symbolic of what it means to be a Christ follower. You've died to your old life and then you're raised to a new life in which he is Lord and in which you you belong to him. And the reason why I say this is an unusual thing, because I think we live in a day and age in which religion is now largely regarded, at least in our Western secular context, is largely regarded as a relic from a bygone era. Perhaps a kind of um, an aspect of humanity in its infancy that we've now outgrown in all our sophistication and all those kinds of things. And there are a number of... um, reasons why I would say that, but I know from personal experience that very often when you talk to people about faith and the fact that you are a Christian, you're met with a range of reactions from just kind of slightly patronizing uh, puzzlement and like, okay, that's nice for you, all the way through to suspicion and a, a measure of anxiety because we've seen what religion can do in the world and we see it on our screens every day reported to us on the news. And I think there are lots of reasons why um, why we would hesitate to imagine that that Christianity can exist and will exist and has a future. And I'll give you a few of them. One of them is, of course, the the fact that we have grown um, comfortable and wealthy and healthy in our our present context. I'm not talking about every individual, but I'm saying generally speaking. And Jesus himself said that it's difficult for the rich to enter. He said impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom because of the sense in which you don't feel a need for God. So what happens then when an entire nation, relatively speaking, is wealthy? And I think we've, we've witnessed what can happen, that there is a sense in which the spiritual element in our lives is, is very much smothered and ignored. We also recognize that there's the power of education, especially in education that is steeped in an, in an, an anti-Christian worldview very, very often. But I'm thinking more of the fact that you know, we, we tend to imagine that our ancestors were somewhat naive and maybe a little gullible in their beliefs and assumptions about the world. And now we've kind of outgrown the things that they believed and thought. And with that is the advances in science and technology. If we once wanted myths and miracles to explain the phenomenon we see around us in the world and our very existence, now you know, the greatest miracle that we ever see is, is the supercomputer in, in your pocket and uh, the, the, the magic of flight and these kinds of things. And we think, well, we don't need God anymore because we have all this abundance of knowledge and insight into how the world works. And then, of course, with that, I think perhaps most powerful of all is the fact that the West has wanted to plunge headlong into um, a reaction against what was seen as the oppression of our Christian history history, and particularly when I think about its moral structures. You think about the last 70 years or so, how the Western world has transformed beyond recognition in this regard, how we now regard ourselves as liberated. We're free to do as we please as individuals, unconstrained by any fear or superstition or imagination of a God over us who might tell us what to do or how to live or what punishments might be waiting for us if we don't obey. And you put all this together, and of course most people are thinking, if Christianity exists at all, its time is numbered. And yet the question hangs with us, why is it that faith persists? And there's so many ways that we could answer that. 
But I want to try and examine it from the perspective of the individual. And really to ask and answer the question from the point of view of why it is that individuals experience something of the compelling draw and compulsion to become followers of Jesus Christ. Why do, why do people feel drawn to Jesus even in this particular day and age when that seems so unlikely on the face of things? Why might you? Now speaking obviously to us here in, in different different groupings or categories, I suppose. And speaking to those of you who are going to be baptized this evening, it is not too late to change your mind. I say it seriously. There's something very dread and serious about this moment. I'm speaking to those of you who've come just to be here to support them, but who wouldn't normally regard church going as something you want to do or interested in. You know, you might be here in the same way that you might attend a wedding. You know, you don't attend a wedding thinking that you're going to somehow partake in the ceremony. You just come to watch and support them because you like them or love them, but you're going to leave and that's that. Baptism is different in the sense that there is implicit in what we're doing here the question about you and your position before God. It puts that question front, in front of your face, I suppose. And of course, for those of you who, for whom your baptism is past tense, the Bible constantly wants you to remember and refresh your commitment, your understanding of what it means to be a child of God, the reason for which you are part of this family, and keep that front and center in your mind and heart. And therefore, I want to address this question. Now, if we're asking the question, then why do people feel drawn to Jesus? What is it about him that would compel you to say yes to him? I want to look at this from two angles. I want to consider, first of all, the negative and really ask the question with you, or look at the answers from the point of view of the reasons why you might choose to walk away from Christ and his call, before I consider some of the positive reasons. Now, beginning then with this negative, I think there are basically two angles on this. One is intellectual, and the other is emotional. Why do people, why might you turn away from Jesus? Here are my two reasons. The first, the intellectual reason, is because you're not convinced. You may have looked at it, may have given it some brief or long consideration, and you've come to the conclusion that you are not convinced. And I would suggest to you that that is perfectly valid reason. But it's also one that isn't particularly considered to be that important in this day and age, because there are many today who, who tend to think that religion has a benefit to us regardless of whether it's true or not. It's veracity doesn't matter. And they say things like this. They say, look, it's good to be connected with history and tradition. It gives you a sense of being connected with the past and a sense of who you are and a sense of identity. So it doesn't really matter whether you believe it or not. Just going into these grand buildings and experiencing the aura and the, the wonder of the atmosphere. I know much less so in here, but maybe in other churches, maybe it gives you a sense of connection with, with something bigger than you. And that's good in and of itself. Or they say, look, we, we all need spirituality in our lives. It's good for us, it's good for our well-being, it's good for our mental health. They say, look, if it, if, it, if it addresses something in you, then fine, go, partake. Or they might say, religion provides some kind of moral structure. You know, if you need a bit of guidance or wisdom in life, why not, why not try out faith? You know, maybe, maybe it'll help you along the way a little bit. And I, 
I would want to push back against that. I don't think any of those are particularly bad reasons to explore in the first place. But I would also say that they're totally inadequate reasons to ever cross the line that these individuals will be crossing this evening in which they're saying, Jesus, have my life. In fact, in many ways, I think this kind of mentality that exists around us in which we say, look, religion might be helpful to you. To me, that's just an expression of our Western consumerism in which we look at everything in life through the lens of whether something might benefit me or not, whether it's, whether it's helpful to me or not. And we don't ask the fundamental question, which is this. Is it true? Is Jesus who he said he was? Did he, did he accomplish the things that are written about him? Was he crucified for your sins? Was he raised from the dead as a vindication of his identity as the Son of God so that he can never be taken from his position of lordship over all creation? Is that true or not? And it seems to me that that's the question we have to ask. And Jesus himself underlined this. He was not interested in people gathering to him as fans or admirers. He wasn't interested in gathering great crowds. He went out of his way when people were only loosely attached to him in that way to offend them and to push back on that that affection and make them confront the question, but do you really believe? And it seems to me that that's the question that has to be asked and answered. And if you come honestly to the conclusion, I have looked at this man, I have examined the claims, and I know for certain that he is not who he claimed to be, I can respect that with, with all my heart. I'm not saying you're right, I disagree respectfully. But I can respect it. I think it's a valid way to approach these things. So there's the intellectual aspect. But I think more often also there's the emotional response that people have to Christ. Now, I think this really comes through in the passage that we read. In the sense that you see what it is that Jesus asks of these men. He's walking along next to the sea where they're engaged in their business as fishermen. And he calls out to them across the waters and says, come Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And I think on first reading, we can look at that through a lens of some kind of like a slightly naive and romantic way that we think this was perhaps something exciting and thrilling, a kind of adventure that these guys were being drawn into. And it plays to our kind of... Um, a kind of, have you ever seen the film The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? How he abandons his job and goes on this great adventure and it's all about finding himself and, and all that. And it's just the gospel of Western secular individualism in a movie. I actually quite enjoy it, but it's complete nonsense at the same time. And you think, well, this is the first century version. If a guy wanted to find himself in the first century, what would he do? He'd abandon his job and follow a rabbi. Maybe. But I don't think that we can take a romantic or naive approach to this. You have to understand that this was profoundly costly for these men. They turned away from family. One of their dads is here in the boat, and he's left carrying the net. Like, what just happened? My boys just walked away. They walked away from family. They walked away from, from whatever income they had. They took the, the biggest risk of their lives in becoming followers of Jesus, especially as he was relatively unknown at this point. And it was deeply costly. 
And it seems to me that the main reason that why people react to the notion of becoming followers of Christ usually isn't a partic- an intellectual one, because most people that I've spoken to don't have a, a very deep concept of who Jesus claimed to be or what he claimed to do. Mostly people react from an intuitive, uh, emotional reaction. They kind of balk at the idea of saying yes to someone who wants to come in and, 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 as it were, become the Lord of your life. And it seems to me that that emotional reaction is really rooted in fear. For one thing, it's the fear of man. I think at root, so many of us are basically people pleasers, aren't we? We want to be liked. And in this day and age, if you want to be liked, the last thing you should do is consider becoming a Christian. Ask any of your friends what it's like for them to go through their day-to-day lives and just how easy it is to wear that badge, that name, that description, that identity. And they'll tell you, well, it's not that easy at all. There's a sacrifice there and an intimidation. I don't, I don't want to be a Christian because I don't want to be associated with those guys. And for these men, by the way, that cost was as real for them, perhaps more so given the fact that three out of the four of these disciples ended up being martyred in their later lives. There's fear of man. Part of this emotional reaction is also fear of lack. Here they are giving up their businesses to come and follow Jesus. And there is implicit within the response of saying yes to Christ, the recognition that if he becomes Lord of my life, the decisions about my future are no longer mine. And this can have radical implications for everything, including my future, my ambitions, my job, how I spend my money, where I live, or everything. And then, of course, with that is the fear of missing out. FOMO, as it's called today. If there's one thing that I think repels people at this emotional level from following Jesus, it is this awareness that to become a follower of Christ is that like previously you may have imagined that the world was just open to you all its options everything that you could imagine is yours for the taking and then to follow Jesus as he describes it is to walk on the narrow path which means that there are a thousand no's to that one great yes He, to become a follower of Jesus, is to have your options constrained and limited and to come into a position in which you have surrendered your life to him. And I think very often, it's a little bit like the fear that we, 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 we feel in response to that is similar to the fear that many young men these days, and I speak with them so I know what this is, they fear walking down the aisle. Because to say yes to one woman is to say yes to a thousand other options. And that's just their big-headed confidence coming through because there never were a thousand other options. But that's what they imagine is the case. And so to say yes to her is to say no to, to all these other people. And there's a sense in which that is what repels people from following Jesus. If I say yes to him, what am I letting go of? What, what way of life am I saying no to? What, what experiences or thrills or indulgences do I have to avoid? What, is it even possible for me to follow him? I don't have the self-control, etc., etc., etc. And to this, you know, what would Jesus say to all this? The reason why I'm majoring on these, these negatives to begin with is because Christ himself did this. He said things like this in Luke chapter 14. He said, 
that whoever does not bear his own cross, he's speaking about the cross as in the implement of execution that the Romans used, who doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, he says, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. He says, well, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Jesus is using these images. He says, look, who of you would start a building project? Are you going to renovate your flat or your home or whatever if you don't have enough money to see the whole thing through? If you're not living in a, a roofless house or something with people laughing at you. He says, who's going to go to war knowing that you're going to lose? So this is what it means to be a disciple of mine. You don't start this journey unless you have seriously weighed and counted the cost. And then he closes it off and says, so therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And I think what he means there is that in principle, the decision to follow Jesus is in principle the decision to say, you have mastery over every detail of my life. And nobody has a business getting baptized or calling themselves a Christian even, who has not settled that in their heart of hearts. There are, in other words, good reasons to say no to Jesus. And yet, I want to draw us to the positives. What is it then, given all this, and maybe you can add some other reasons of your own, what is it that compels people to continue making that commitment and draw, that's, that so many are continually making that commitment day after day in this world? What was it that compelled these men to do as they did, to make this radical step and abandon their livelihood and come and become followers of Christ? I've seen many, many, many people baptized over the years. And I do not mean babies splashed against their will or completely oblivious to what's taking place. I mean grown-ups making a decision, saying, I'm going to follow Christ. I've seen it happen time and time again. And you ask, what is it that compels people to do that, given all this? And I'll show you a few things. The call of Christ is compelling, partly because it is so deeply personal. He walked along the Sea of Galilee and he singled these men out. He called them by name, as it were. And there is something odd about this because typically when rabbis were beginning to gather a retinue of followers, the students, disciples, it didn't work like this. They didn't go out looking for candidates in this kind of what could be perceived as a slightly desperate way. Come and be my follower. My, the other rabbis got more than me, so come and follow me. No, no, no. They, they, they actually sat down, went about their teaching, and people applied to come and sit under them as students, and they would examine their options and decide who the best candidates were. Now, Jesus took a different approach altogether. He did, of course, issue a general invitation Follow me. But he also went in search of individuals like this. And this is what he says about 
his followers. He says of them that he's like a shepherd who calls his own sheep by name. And then he says that the sheep follow him for they know his voice. What I'm trying to describe for you here is something at the heart of the Christian faith. What makes it such a compelling experience of coming to know Jesus is this fact that at the root of things, you recognize that you did not choose him. He chose you. This experience of being called by name, it's not necessarily that you hear an audible voice. Although one of the guys sharing his testimony this morning, to my great surprise, told just that account of how God kind of spoke to him in this very supernatural and extraordinary way and that compelled him to become a Christian. You can go back and watch that on the, uh, uh, the live stream video from this morning if you want to catch up on those testimonies. I don't think that's normal. But what is normal? Let's just set your expectations. What is normal is that you, become, you can become aware in all kinds of ways that Christ is, is coming after you. That he is awakening your conscience and you become aware of a need to get right before God. Or you become conscious of a great yawning appetite for spiritual satiation in your soul. And you, you're aware that God is awakening this. You become dissatisfied with everything else that's happened in your life to this point, And you, you know only God can, can touch you in that place. Or you're drawn in some weird way to Jesus, his person, his majesty, his teaching, his authority. And friend, look, I don't think it's the same for everyone. But story after story after story in Scripture and in my own experience and with friends is of this account that Christ called. I, didn't get, I couldn't say no because he came after me. His, this call of Christ is compelling because it is personal in this way. And he breaks down your resistance. Are you aware of that happening in your life? If you are, friend, I want you to pay attention to what is happening. Another reason why the call of Christ is so compelling is because it is gracious. And I want to just explain what I mean by that. You're in a church, we call the church Grace London. And grace is so central and essential to what we believe about the love of God. What it means is that God gives us what we do not deserve. And this is true. It's written all over this account, really, of what happened with these men and their lives. They had zero qualifications to become students of a rabbi and become his followers in the way that they did. Typically what happened was that rabbis accepted young boys to become their students because their minds were malleable at a young age. You remember the task that was before them very often as, as young Jewish boys was then to devote themselves to, to the scriptures and to memorize the Torah. So they needed to be young, they needed to start early and they would choose the most promising ones from among them, the young students. And you know, there's a sense in which these men were past it. I don't know if you saw last night the wonderful triumph of Emma Raducanu, the British tennis player who won the first, the first British woman to win a Grand Slam in 40 or something years. And uh, you're watching it and maybe you thought, well, I fancy picking up a racket at some point. It doesn't look so hard. You know, maybe you fancy a bit of success in life. You wouldn't mind winning the two and a half million dollars. But the, the, the grim reality, friend, is that you are too old. 
You are too old. You should have started maybe 20, 30 years ago. Who knows? You are too old. And there's a sense in which these men, these men were more shocked than anyone when Jesus, this, this, this rabbi who was beginning to grow in fame and people were beginning to be drawn to him. And as you see, extraordinary power was flowing through him. He was a healing the sick and so on. When he comes and calls to them and they'd be like, they'd be like looking behind them. Like, He's talking to someone else. We're, we're grown fishermen. And what, the reason why I draw your attention to this, friends, partly because the Bible does, it's one thing that it keeps pointing out. You know, this is, this is the way Jesus rolled. He loved to choose people who had no expectation of being chosen. But Christ's approach was time and time again just so shockingly different. The people who thought that they had a place around Jesus were not the ones that he called. It was the people who didn't think they had a place. Either because like these men, their, their background and their education and their experiences to date disqualified them from this particular calling. Or because, in many cases, because they were morally disqualified. I think particularly, you know, one of his other disciples, the one who wrote this gospel, the disciple Matthew, was a tax collector. In other words, scum. I'm not saying that the HMRC guys are scum. It was a different thing, okay? <laughs> a different thing. They worked for the Romans and they robbed people of their money and lined their own pockets. They were scum. And Jesus says, I'll have you, Matthew. Turn his life around. And there was among his close friends these women, at least one of them notorious as being a sinner. You can guess what it means. His life turned around by Jesus. And friend, everyone here who has come to recognize Christ as Lord in their life will be able to say with me, I was not worthy. That was his grace to me. Just like these men must have been utterly shocked That's what you feel. And that's partly what makes it so powerfully compelling. You're unworthy, yet you're loved. You're not good enough, and that is what makes the call so compelling. Another thing here is that Christ's call is transformational. Now, what I mean in saying that it is transformational is you see how Jesus immediately began to turn the lives of these men around. He said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men which is to say that they were launched on a radically different trajectory in life from the one that they had expected for themselves. And I have mentioned already, of course, the fact that there is a cost involved in them abandoning their nets and then becoming followers of this teacher. But there was also something deeply exciting and appealing in that. Maybe they didn't see this in its fullness at the time, but as time rolls on, what we see about these men is that they did not do anything less than change the world. The effect of their lives and the lives they lived because they'd been with Jesus, we're still feeling those effects today. And that is because Jesus was the catalyst, the pivotal, activating power in their lives that turned them from being self-interested perhaps and just locked into their little lives to becoming these, these, these new people. 
And friend, I want you to understand that what, what, what makes the gospel and what makes the call of Christ so compelling is this fact. That its heart is this promise of transformation. It always begins in the heart, of course. Jesus begins and he promises you a new heart, renewed love, renewed affections, the cleansing of the old, the ridding of the old, and the beginning of the new. And it's symbolized with the baptism as well, by the washing. We're being washed of the, from the past and being launched into a new life. This transformation begins in an internal sense, but it also bursts out into your life in all kinds of ways that are visible to others so that people stop and take notice when people become Christians. They say, something's different about you. And hopefully they mean good things. I think about one example of this. It's a man called John Newton who was born in the 1720s. And as a teenager, he started his work life working on ships. And he found himself working in the slave trade, transporting slaves from the African coast through across the Atlantic. And he worked his way up so that by his early 20s, he was captaining slave ships. Now, somewhere in his early 20s, John Newton had an experience that terrified him, and he began to call out to God. And something began to awaken in him. A spirituality began to awaken in him, and he became a Christian. And after some time, beginning to get to know God and his demands and his claims on, on John Newton's life, John Newton was radically transformed. He went from being a captain of a slave ship, to becoming a pastor. You can visit the church here in London that he pastored. It's still standing. And not only that, but he authored what has become one of the most famous songs in all history, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. Don't those words take on new meaning when you know the account of what this man had done? But now I'm found was blind, but now I see. He became a pastor. He became an abolitionist. He became something of a mentor to William Wilberforce, the, the parliamentarian who worked so hard along with many others for the abolition of the slave trade. And you think, how did that change take place in that man's life? And it's because Christ called him. And he said, yes. I want to say one last thing about this, friends. The, Christ, the call of Christ is not only personal and gracious and transformational, it is also relational. And it's inherent in what he said when he invited these men to him. And these words are unusual. He said to them, follow me. You have to understand that his contemporaries, other Bible teacher rabbis, would not say, follow me. They would say, follow the Torah. Follow the law of God. I can teach you what you need to know so that you can live a life devoted to God's word. Now, Christ did not in any way want to diminish adherence to and passion for the scriptures. But how interesting that he made himself the focus. And what it means about this call of the Lord Jesus Christ when he begins to summon you to himself is that he is not calling you to an ideology. 
I think many people have tried to reduce the teaching of Jesus down to an ideology. They've turned him into a, a revolutionary or someone interested in political change. And in the greater sense, of course, that's true. Jesus has come to change the world. There's no question about that. But it is not about merely an adherence to a set of ideas or an ideology. Nor was Jesus calling people to a pathway of self-improvement. And you and I know how unbelievably hard, nay, impossible it is to improve ourselves, right? Nor was he calling us to religion, even, in the way that we typically understand it. Or we think of this great system and this institution in which we are, our lives become oppressed and maybe controlled by, by others and by a law and a a, a, a system of right and wrong that makes us feel bad most of the time. So what, this wasn't what Jesus was doing. What he was doing was he was saying, follow me. And you cannot understand the call of Christ unless at the heart of it you recognize that it is the experience of coming to know Jesus as someone you love and someone that you're growing to know day after day and year after year. And I think that, the, therefore, the yes to Christ is, is something like the experience that people have when they fall in love. You know when couples fall in love and everyone knows it because they're so irritatingly gooey and affectionate with one another. And there is this kind of temporary madness that descends upon them where they'll do crazy things like they might leave their job, move city, even go against family, abandon friends because of their devotion to their beloved. And there's a sense in which... That is what Jesus made Christ so compelling, was that when people were drawn to him, they were captivated by him. It's a love relationship with this distinction that it's not temporary and it's not madness. It's when you find sanity for the first time in your life. And I want to just summarize this in this way and just say, friends, there are very good reasons to walk away from Jesus. There are good reasons, as I've laid out for you. But when everything was put into the balance, these men must have concluded that the benefits and the reasons to say yes to him far outweighed the cost that they would have to pay. Sometime later, there is a moment in John's gospel when many people are abandoning Jesus. People who's half, who only made a half-hearted commitment or were only vaguely interested in him. And Jesus turns to these, very, these same men, these, these close disciples, and says, are you going to leave me also? And I love Peter's answer. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Their confidence that they had made the right choice, in other words, did not diminish, but rather grew with every passing day. And even more so, I believe, in later life when they witnessed what he would do for them. When he would deliberately go to Jerusalem knowing that he'd be killed, that he would be subjected to the brutal beatings and whippings of the Roman soldiers who crucified him, an innocent man, so that he could take our punishment upon himself when he died upon the cross. And then when these same men, his disciples, would witness him raised from the dead three days later, 
and be so utterly transformed by the experience and the certainty that Jesus is now alive that they would then be launched on trajectories of preaching and mission that would take them all over the world and ultimately lead most of them to their death. This is the call of Christ. And it is as powerful today as it was then. Friends, I want to invite you to to have a moment to reflect on this. Why don't we bow our heads? We are going to respond in worship, and then we will have the privilege of hearing these testimonies. And we've also brought back uh, one of the guys who got baptized this morning to come and share his story with you this evening. We're going to hear these stories in a minute or two. But in one sense, I don't just want this to be about them. This is also about you. This is also about your response to Christ. And I want to invite you to consider afresh. Is there something here? Is there something in this? We're going to worship in just a moment and we're going to take communion also. We eat the bread, we drink the wine as a celebration and a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. So if you're a Christian, eat and drink unless we worship now. But I want to pray. Father, we thank you that you and your grace have called so many of us here to be in your family. And I thank you, Lord, that even despite ourselves, we've said yes. I want to pray, Lord, for your favor upon these individuals who are getting baptized this evening, that this will mark a moment in their lives, a threshold, a line in the sand. And I pray also, Lord, if you by the Spirit of God are whispering to individuals here today. You're in pursuit of them. Lord, I pray that they will feel drawn and be drawn to you in a way that is irresistible. And I ask this in your precious name. Amen.